In light of all that's going on here today, I wanted to lay out what it looks like, what it means for us to be a mosaic church. If you're a guest, you've especially walked into sort of a unique morning here. I hope you're sort of picking up on what's going on. Uh, let me just begin by saying this. There are, there are many great churches in this city. We're blessed to be in a city where the gospel has taken root and is growing in many churches. And we're grateful for all of them. We co-labor with them, know the pastors by name. In a couple of weeks, I'll be going to a pastor's retreat where I'll spend a, a good day, day and a half, laboring with other pastors, seeking the welfare of the city, praying for God's church here. And yet, and yet, just like with your body, every part of the body of Christ is unique and functions in a unique way with a unique purpose to serve the body overall. It would do the body of Christ, we believe, no good for us to not be who we are, to make that clear as we function together. So, with that in mind and all you've heard so far, let's turn our attention to the passage on which the teaching is based this morning. Uh, it's going to be from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. We're going to talk about what it means to be a Mosaic church. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. <clears throat> we are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. That's God's word this morning. So let's, let's ask, what does a mosaic church look like? How will it feel to those coming in? How will we sound to the city? What kind of unique sound will we have here in Austin, Texas? So let me just switch gears for a minute in hopes of sort of illustrating and answering this question. I've got a little prop up here today, and uh, I'm going to ask you a question in just a moment as I pull this out. All right, how many of you, by a show of hands, uh, know what this is? Know what this is. All right, how many of you, by a show of hands, do not know what this is? Anybody? There was, there was a brave soul in the first service. He raised his hand, so... Uh, for any of you who know much about sound or about music, you may already know that this thing, a vinyl record, actually has the best ability to reproduce the original sound of a band or a singer or of an instrument of some kind. Now, it, it takes some expensive and high-end equipment to be able to access all the high highs and the low lows that are on a vinyl record, but more than any other format, 
The broadest range of sound possible is on a vinyl record due to the manufacturing process of how it's made. And we've got a couple of little video clips here to help illustrate this. The, the, ma- the, the master disc, what you see there, is one that has on it the original sound. It's, the sound is cut into that lacquered disc by a diamond tipped stylus, which you see right there, through which passes that wire there, the currency, frequency, vibrations of the song, and the stylus cuts into the record as it spins tiny circular grooves. Now, once that master is completed, another process begins, which puts the copy that you have in your hands. This time, a thick, soft aluminum disc is pressed into the master, which makes a negative of sorts, now with the grooves facing outward. Now that negative is in turn pressed down into the vinyl, making a copy or an image of the master, which you now hold in your hand. But there are a few problems to recreating that original sound and putting it in the hands of music collectors. First, to make a vinyl record is painstaking and time-consuming. Secondly, vinyl records are fragile and easily broken. And third, they become worn and scratched with age and use. And as you can see, this process is a far cry from how our digital music comes to us today. Digital music takes the original sound and compresses it really small in a nice little neat files and lines and then uh, puts them uh, in, in a small space. It's easily reproducible, digital music is. It's highly portable and it's difficult to distort. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad for that. After all, you know, this thing doesn't fit into your dash very well. It's hard to, you know, get that thing in there or to go for a run with that, you know, strapped to your arm or a record player, that's going to be a challenge to to work out or or pump iron like Pastor Brett. But to get the most accurate sound possible, you'd actually need one of these, a vinyl record. Now, we believe that God has an authentic and original sound for this church and this family of Jesus followers that the master wants to press into us his tracks, his grooves in a sense, so that when people hold the needle of their ear, so to speak, up to our church, they can hear what he sounds like. And it will sound a certain way. Now, like the making of a record, the making of a church, of any church, is a painstaking time-consuming and fragile process. And all God's people said, amen. But I ultimately believe, and I hope you do too, that it will be worth it. So let's ask now, what do we sound like? What do we believe the master wants us to broadcast to the world? Well, there's four tracks this morning, four, uh, you know, cuts in a sense, the four R's of a mosaic church. Now, many of you know that our core values are worship, community and mission. These are our primary colors, so to speak. These things aren't changing, but yet, you know, many of you know that as the primary colors intersect and overlap, a whole new range of color begins to emerge, and that's what these things are, these four R's this morning. So think of these four R's as sort of the secondary colors, or another way of expressing what's primary. All right, so let's look at these in turn here, the four tracks, the four R's of a mosaic church. First, there's relevance. Secondly, risk, then relationship, and reconciliation. You guys ready? Let's do this. All right, let's look at each of these in turn from our scripture passage. We'll begin with number one, relevance. Now, if you're familiar with the book, the the book of 2 Corinthians is actually Paul's defense against skeptics of his ministry, opponents of his authority. There was an ongoing, can you believe it, power struggle in a church. 
sarcasm is included and free in this message. So people were lining themselves up behind different leaders and different preachers, some of whom or many of whom had questionable motives. And so Paul wrote this letter to this church, and what he's doing in the letter is amazing. Paul is opening up the gospel and applying it to the problems inside the church, what we call task theology. And so Paul summarizes here in chapter 5, the first four and a half chapters of what he's written. He summarizes his whole argument with this statement. He says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. All right, Paul's saying, here's who I am. I'm a person living as best as I can in the fear of the Lord, and I'm a person doing my best to bring others to Jesus. That's it. Now, there's a principle here he's showing us, and here's the principle. It's this. It's you can only be as relevant to others as you are clear about who you are yourself. You can only be as relevant to others as you are clear about who you are yourself. He's saying here, let me do my best to be absolutely crystal clear about who I am and what this church is. And his clarity of purpose made him a relevant voice and sound to that church and therefore to the city of Corinth. And as a result, he shows us this, that one of the ongoing challenges of leadership in any church is to distinguish between what we are and what we're not. And if there were a need, I believe that any and every church has, especially today, it's to be able to communicate what it is and what it isn't within a culture that always seeks to marginalize and mute the sound of God's church. Now, let me give you one example of this, the importance of being clear. In his new book called Living the Secular Life, New Answers to Old Questions, atheist author Phil Zuckerman looks at the main forces he believes that are causing what he calls a wave of secularization to go, to go across America. And there are many factors that he cites. And of course, he's encouraging of this trend. He notes that time spent on the internet actually shows an increase, excuse me, a decrease in faith in God. The more time you spend on the internet, the less likely you are to believe in God. How about that? He notes the cover-up of sexual abuse in the Roman Catholic Church as a factor. And he notes the impact of authors such as Richard Dawkins and the New Atheist, TV shows like South Park and Family Guy and The Daily Report. But he goes on to say this and concludes this way. He says, but the larger reality is that for the many millions of Americans who have joined the ranks of the non-religious, the causes are most likely to be political and sociological in nature. Beginning in the 1980s with the rise of such groups as the Moral Majority and the Christian Coalition, the closeness of conservative republicanism with evangelical Christianity has been increasingly tight and publicly overt. Throughout the 1990s and 2000s, more and more politicians on the right embraced the conservative Christian agenda, and more and more outspoken conservative Christians allied themselves with the Republican Party. What all of this has done is alienate a lot of left-leaning or politically moderate Americans from Christianity. Sociologists Michael Hote and Claude Fisher have published compelling research indicating that much of the growth of nuns in America is largely attributable to a reaction against this increased overt mixing of Christianity and conservative politics. Or, as sociologist Mark Shaves put it, after 1990, more people thought that saying you were religious was tantamount to saying you were a conservative Republican. 
Now, all right, before you react and throw stuff at me, let me just say this. It's true, it's true, that some people, due to whatever is in their heart, will walk away from God and find any excuse to do it. They'll justify it with anything. Political climate, TV show, book, etc. But yet, yet don't miss his underlying analysis. What makes people uncomfortable, and rightfully so, is the close alliance between any political party and the Christian faith. Because you see, the church is not a political institution, though it must speak into and shape politics. And Christians must involve themselves in the public square, and many of you I know do. But the danger is this, that if the church seeks to align itself with any political party step for step, it risks losing its own distinctiveness and and risks losing its prophetic ability to speak into and shape both parties, any parties, all parties. And here the point. If we're not clear about who we are and why we're here, the odds of our assimilating into or being assimilated by a culture at large, political party, will increase. And as a result, our voice and sound will be muted. Therefore, a mosaic church, one that's made up of all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, must be a church that's on a clear and therefore relevant mission, which is this. We are on a mission to change the city with the gospel and change the way people view the church. We don't think the city just needs another church, although we're grateful for every church planner that's moving here to keep up with our growing population. But the city needs another kind of church, a church that isn't politically liberal or politically conservative, but one that's politically engaged. A church that's socially conscious and expresses the gospel in word and deed. A church that's intentionally, permanently, irrevocably diverse. A church that has a plurality of leadership, it's hopefully strong and approachable. A church that loves both the grace of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, and the holiness of God. A church that doesn't say its focus is either the unchurched on one hand or church people on the other, but wants both. A church that's both passionate and deep, or you don't have to check your emotions or your brain at the door. A church that has the fireplace of church history within it, and inside that, the fire of the Holy Spirit for today. A church that is current, but not current events driven. Not just, can you see, another church, but another kind of church, one that's distinct, that has a kind of sound. And like the creation of a vinyl record, that is a painstaking, time-consuming, and fragile process to achieve. And one, therefore, that must be carefully guarded along the way. And if you've wondered or are wondering why we're changing the name, you need to look no further than point number one. We believe it makes us more distinct. It believes it, make, we, it makes our sound that God has given us clearer to the city, to people who aren't here yet. You see, what we are is plain to God. We are a mosaic, and I hope it's plain to you and becomes more and more clear and plain to the city. That's number one. Number two, the second track or second R of the sound of a mosaic church is this. It's simply risk. And Paul goes on to say this in verse 14. He says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. Now, there's an interesting and sort of tricky word to translate here. If you're familiar with the passage, you may know that other translations translate that word uh, 
compels, is ultimately constrains, or one version says controls. And the NIV actually gives us a pretty good stab at it. I think we can get that scripture up there, verse 14. It's the word compels. Yeah, the word compels. It comes from a Greek word with an interesting word picture. It means to press in on every side, like a cattle pin that forces animals like cows to go through single file, or like a two mountains or cliffs that come together, and there's a strait of water that passes through it that forces ships to go in single file and you can see why it's tricky to translate because Paul is saying literally Christ's love on the inside of me is shooting me out into the world it's making me go a certain direction it's forcing me to do things I would never do on my own in other words Christ's love is risk-oriented Can you see? It's risk-oriented. And Christ's love, many times, will feel like godly pressure, like something you just got to do. It looks like risky things. And if you're new here, maybe it's like uh, experiencing risk in the form of joining a community group with other people you don't know or don't look like you or a different age or background or whatever. Or maybe it's you leading a community group. Maybe it's you opening up your mouth and sharing Jesus with your neighbor or a co-worker. Listen, just to become a Christian is a risky venture itself. Right? It means Jesus comes before your family, before your friends, or before your career. And so whenever Christ's love touches your heart, fills your heart, reshapes your heart, there are just going to be some things that Christ's love forces you, compels you to do, pushes you out to do. That to go against would be like a ship trying to back itself up in between two cliffs. Or like a cow trying to back itself up in line going through a pin. In other words, you can't do it. It would be impossible. You have to go forward. You have to take a risk sometimes. And therefore, we understand this. It's a risk, we realize, to change the name of the church. It just is. But as our leadership team has prayed and we wrestled through this, discussed the decision, we come back to one thing. The love of Christ compels us. It's pressing us in to do this. We feel obligated, in a sense, pressure to do this. And Every great endeavor, you've got to know, any great endeavor for Jesus will be built on the foundation of risk. Risk, let me clarify, risk is not gambling. Not the same. Gambling is you hoping you draw an ace out of the deck. Sorry to offend you poker players with all your percentages. You're hoping that you, you, know, you draw an ace or the wind goes out your back. But that's not it. Risk is Bible faith. Risk is looking at the person of Jesus, listening to his voice, asking him what's in his heart for you, And then both humbly and boldly going off in that direction. Godly risk, Bible faith, hear this, are built on understanding. On understanding. Understanding drawn not from knowing what will happen one day. It's impossible to know. But understanding drawn from what has happened in the past. And what does Paul say has happened? Oh, Christ has died for all. And it's changed everything. Any risk you take is based on an understanding of what Jesus has done for you. He risked it all, see? And therefore, I am committed, we are committed to be about living in the reality of risk. And we'll take any and every risk necessary to see people in this city come to faith in Jesus and to grow and mature in Him. As long as there is, church, one person in this city who doesn't know Jesus, as long as there's one person on the university campus here who doesn't know Jesus, we'll do whatever it takes. Take any risk, spend any price, do whatever. Listen, our churches aren't big enough. 
as long as there's one person in the city who doesn't know Jesus. Does this sound like crazy talk? It might be, and Paul admits it in the previous verse. He says, if we are out of our mind, as some say, and maybe some of you have said this is crazy, <laughs> it's for God. This is for God. See, godly risk is based on an understanding of what Jesus has done for us and what he's lovingly pressuring us to do right now. That's number two. Number three, third track of a mosaic church is this. It's a familiar concept, I hope, if you've been here. It's relationship. It's a church that's committed to relationships. And let's look at what Paul says about this to his church. He says, so from now on, meaning others had done this in the past, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. It's an amazing verse, but he begins by saying, we're not going to regard, we're not going to look at one another from a worldly point of view. What does that mean? Well, for us, it means this, that relationships are not disposable. Relationships are not consumer-oriented. They're not, what have you done for me lately? How good was the message? Did I like the song or not? Did someone take care of my little leader in promised land like I hoped they would? No, our relationships aren't something to be jettisoned when the going gets rough and the waters get choppy. Because if you sail long enough, they just will. Why, is, why don't we do this? Oh, because we believe that kind of relationship would be seeing one another... From a worldly point of view. And how does our culture encourage us to see relationships? In a consumer-oriented way. See, this church is about, any great church will be about people, about relationships. And so I want to take the next three minutes, if I could, because I will, to drill down on this for us. Because this thing is so counterintuitive to who we are in our culture as Western Americans. And yet so central to the Bible's fundamental message, we've got to go over it time and time again. All right? So from the beginning, when you look at the Bible, God's plan has been to have not individuals, but a people for himself. When he promised a single man, Abraham in Genesis, that he would give him land, why did God promise him this? Look at Genesis 17, 8. God says, I will give it to you and your descendants after you, and I will be who? Their God. Their God. Plural. See, even God's promise to a single person was about how he wanted to make a people. Let's go on to Exodus and look through the Old Testament for a moment. When God freed the people from slavery in Egypt and gave them his laws, his Torah, why did he do it? Look at verse 45. He said, then I will dwell among the Israelites and be what? Their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of, the, out of Egypt. Why? So that I might dwell where? Among them. And why finally did he promise us the new covenant in Jesus? Jeremiah 32 says this. They will be my people and I will be their God. Look at the last verse, verse 40. I will make an everlasting covenant. With who? Not him or her. Right? But with who? With them. And this is why when we get here to 2 Corinthians 5, when Paul gives us perhaps the greatest picture of what it means to be an individual Christian, he says, you're a new creation. It literally means a new species of being like you're some kind of zoo experiment. People come in and touch and poke and prod. He says, you're a new species of being. Why? Because you've got a new DNA in you. You've got a new bloodline in you. And because you've got a new DNA and a bloodline and a new father, 
Oh, that means you're part of a new family, part of a new kind of people. And because you are new and she is new and he is new and they are new, you can't look at them the same. You can't look at them as a brown person, a pale person, you know, alabaster skin. Thank you very much. Spotted, pink, crossed, whatever. You can't look at them like that anymore. Old, young, anything in between. See, even when Paul gives this example of what it means to be an individual Christian, he gives it in the context of what it means to be a people. He's saying you can't look at people the same way in a church. Why? Because that person next to you, like him or not, maybe you do, maybe you don't, is a new creation. D.A. Carson puts it like this in his book, Love in Hard Places. He said, I suspect that one of the reasons why there are so many exhortations in the New Testament for Christians to love other Christians is because this is not an easy thing to do. Smart guy. The church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, <coughs> but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Let me apply it briefly for us. When it comes to having interracial friendships and relationships, here's what we're called to do. Not just to not hate, not just to tolerate, not just to be okay with, but to love. For many years, I thought I was fine with just not hating certain people, groups, and cultures, but that's not it. See, many times we think, oh, I don't actively hate those people. I don't actively rob them, steal from them, lie to whoever, what kind of person. But since when is not hating someone the message of the gospel? Hmm? I'm not going to do you to the service of standing in line next to you at, the, at the, um, the community lunch afterward and coming up to you and saying, hey, brother, sister, good news. I don't totally not hate you. I don't know if I, I maybe I double-tracked on my negatives there or something like that. I don't know. I don't totally hate you. Yeah. Oh, wow, thanks. Gee whiz for that. Good news right now. Listen, the world can do that. But if you can't say, oh, I love that kind of person with that kind of skin, you got some work to do. You say, oh, that kind of person is so different from me culturally. Listen to kind of mu- different kind of music, and they, they, they talk differently than I do. Listen, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't use an excuse of being different? as a reason to not come and relate to you. Hmm? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't use that as an excuse not to rescue you or get involved with the human race? Aren't you glad he didn't say, oh, Father, I can't go there. They're so different than I am. Listen, there couldn't be someone more different than you than the Son of God, right? He's perfect. No one in here is. Except for my wife. Except for you, love. Thank you very much. Love you, of course. Listen, He's divine. You're human. He's infinite. You will come and go on this planet in a time span so short in the history of planet Earth as to be almost incalculable. But he came to make you a part of a people, not a part of just a service 
once or twice a month. A mosaic church is built on relationships, not great music or great preaching, if you're lucky enough to get that once in a while, or great facilities or free and addictive hot beverages we give you every week to get you to come back. Listen, if you're the last one in here and the first one to leave, how does that square with Jesus' teaching and commandment to love one another. Listen, at that point, you're a fan. You've jettisoned the church like people jettison their team when they don't make the playoffs, right? Listen, fans come and go. Christians merge their lives together. So now we should ask, because we must, how? How can we do all this? It's a lot to live up to, isn't it? Risk, relevance, relationship. How can we live these kind of lives? Because of, finally, number four, the fourth track of a mosaic church, the value of reconciliation. Paul says, all this is from God, all of it, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. He's saying all this newness, all these new ways of seeing each other in the world come through one thing, one word, reconciliation. It's God coming down to bring us back. And therefore, we have to ask, what does this mean? What does it mean to say God's reconciled us, that he's come down to bring us back? Herman Melville, the writer of Moby Dick, sums sums up what most of us have felt or feel like toward God. He said this, The reason the mass of men are afraid of God and at the bottom dislike him is because they'd rather distrust his heart and fancy him all brain like a watch. He's saying the reason the mass of men or most people keep their distance of God is because they distrust his heart toward them. And you know what? He's right. Most people think that serving themselves rather than God is the greatest thing they could do. They think serving themselves rather than God is safer and better. And to be honest, we know most people on their own don't really even seek God, do they? Most people don't. You say, but Morgan, don't we live in a culture, in a nation where most people would say that they're, you know, a faith or a Christian or believe in a God? And yes, by most polls, most Americans would say they believe in the existence of God. But the real God, the biblical God, the God who thunders from Mount Sinai, who says, be holy for I am holy, have no other gods before me. Oh, we don't like that God. We want to keep our distance. And we do. So what can, what did the biblical God do about it? Well, to win us back, God did battle, went to war for, hear this, for our hearts and for your heart. Soren Kierkegaard put it like this in a parable he wrote. He said, suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. This king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all his opponents. And yet, this mighty king was humbled by love for a humble maiden. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and her body with royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one dared resist him. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly? Would she be happy at his side? How could he know? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort waving white banners, that too would overwhelm her. But he did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover. 
And of course, this is a parable, church, of Jesus Christ coming to earth, who took off his heavenly robes, stepped out of his royal carriage, and entered into the dark forest of humanity. He came and is coming to the door of our hearts today to whisper these words. I have come for you. I've come to rescue you. I have come to save you. This is a beautiful love story, isn't it? It's the most beautiful of all love stories. But as you know, in all love stories, there's a price to be paid to win the maiden's heart. The king would have to die to save the maiden's life, which is exactly what 2 Corinthians 5 tells us did happen. Because you see, our word reconciliation doesn't quite capture all that's there. The Greek word for reconciliation is literally the word for exchange. Exchange. Paul is saying God exchanged Christ for us. He exchanged his only son for us. The ministry of reconciliation is really the ministry of exchange. One life for another. In other words, it requires a price. And God paid it through Jesus. Paul put it like this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, reconciliation looks like exchange. It looks like cost. Why? Oh, so God could woo and win every heart to show you there's nothing greater he could give to pull you up out of the small life and small story you've been a part of and put you into his great story. To quote Rose in Titanic, he came to save you in every way you can be saved. And God did it. He made himself relevant. He changed his form without changing his nature. He took a risk. He committed himself to relationships, didn't he? And in the end, died a death of humiliation and shame. And he exchanged his life for yours. See, the king died to rescue the poor and humble maiden. In church, that's the gospel. And now we have to ask, what do we do with this? Once we receive it, well, Paul says this. Now God has committed to us that same thing, the ministry of exchange. He said, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Let me ask you, do people around you know God is making an appeal to them through you? Through how you live, huh? Where you go, how you act, how you talk. Do people around you know God is appealing to them through you? today. Hmm? Let me just rephrase it. Let me just put it like this. It just may cost us something to do this. Matter of fact, let me rephrase that. It will cost us to have this kind of ministry. Not in a way it costs God, no, but in smaller ways. Through how we give our money. Through how we get up early, perhaps, to come to the prayer meeting. Through maybe how we say no to steak and fries on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday to be part of our corporate fast this week. Maybe to risk our reputations, to do what's right in business when no one's going to see. And it doesn't really matter, apparently, otherwise. Maybe it's to take a risk to serve people in your community or to take a hit to your reputation and not retaliate. See, that's the ministry of exchange, of cost, little by little. See, an ambassador goes with the values his ruler has put into his heart. And so what do we value now as we go out into the world and move into the city? Sacrifice, exchange, reconciliation. That's what, as you saw, Pastor Matt is doing in Marseille, France. He's going... This guy, this, my buddy in college, my roommate from Beaumont, Texas. He moved to France because God spoke to him in a vision in the shower one day. The guy doesn't speak French. He hardly speaks English. He's from Beaumont, for crying out loud. No offense. If you're from Beaumont, 
He's a good old boy. Moved his family, his wife, four kids, which is unheard of. They get stared at everywhere they go in France. To the city, learns the language. And now he's packing out that little cafe he bought with his own money, with North Africans, atheists, drug dealers, people, and crazy sexual lifestyles all being reconciled to God. It's a miracle. And as he's done that, and as he's paid that price, guess what's happened? Oh, it's the same thing that will happen for us. As we do the same thing here, we'll get this. We'll get what all great records have. We'll get a bonus track. <laughs> a bonus track. Finally, number five. Redemption. Redemption. What's redemption? Redemption looks like piece by piece. God picking something up that's been shattered and putting it back together. Redemption looks like broken things, jagged shapes, different colors, different backgrounds that have been dropped and crushed and now reassembled into something more beautiful and original than it ever was before. Redemption, in other words, gospel redemption, looks like a mosaic. Looks like a mosaic. And I believe redemption happens. A mosaic is assembled when the ministry of exchange is applied again and again and again over time to people and families. And now redemption happens in a city. Because it's happening in a city, it can happen in a nation. And this is what we have to give this city. And what you've heard me talk about this morning, I believe, isn't something so much that we want to be as it's something we've already been. We're not just talking about what our values will be, but what we already are. And as we live these over and over, redemption can happen. It's difficult, it's painstaking, and it's time-consuming. But in the gospel, because of Jesus, oh church, it can be ours. I'm up for it. How about you? How about you? Let's pray as we close and our team comes to minister to us. Lord, we thank you for the ministry of exchange, how you've paid the cost in yourself to rescue us. You've come to the door of our hearts in humble clothes, come off your throne and died for us to prove you really do love us. And Lord, I thank you for every life in here today. Lord, what you've assembled here, it's astonishing. It's a miracle. It's you who have made us and not we ourselves. And Lord, I'm praying for grace and courage. Lord, to live these, to walk with these over and over again when the sand swirls and the foam of the sea swirls around us and all those metaphors, we'd cling to this. Cling to these, cling to you. Thank you for every life in here. Lord, I pray you put hope in every person's heart. Hope in every person's heart. No matter what they've gone through, no matter what they've been through, that God, you're greater. That God, you're greater. That you can bring life from the dead. Though you died on Friday, though we all know Sunday came. We thank you for Sunday coming. Not just for this church. For every life in here. Lord, I pray every heart would soar and cling to that hope today. In Jesus' name.